church. So, so glad you're all here this morning. I am very excited to be here again. Um, this time I don't have to fill in for anyone. I was planned to be here, so that's always a nice feeling. Uh, this summer we've been looking at uh, the parables of Jesus, and we've been looking at how Jesus presented a truth from God in a strange or unusual kind of way. Um, and we're going to be doing that today uh, with two important topics in mind, uh, that of justice and of faith. Um, and so I'm going to tell you a little story about justice and why it's so important to us. Before I do, though, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Uh, that's where our story comes from today. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, I was one of the first groups that Greenville Oaks took on our mission trip to Impact Houston, where we would go and work with a children's uh, VBS program for inner city kids in Houston. A lot of fun, great week where we got to serve those kids. Um, one of the last things we did that week was we got to go to the beach at Galveston. Um, and understand, I use the word beach very generously when I talk about Galveston. Um, I, I don't want to offend anyone from Galveston, but I think you and I both know that uh, not many destination weddings are being planned there. Um, not, not my favorite place, but a beach is a beach. So we got to have fun and relax. Um, and some of you will remember the Reynolds family that used to go here. Some of you know them. Uh, their two oldest kids, Sawyer and Sydney, were also on that trip with us. So one of the other great facets of our favorite beach, Galveston, is the hordes of winged rats we call seagulls flying all over the place, terrorizing us, making sure we don't ever turn our backs on our food or small children that they could carry away. So just hordes and hordes of seagulls flying out here. Um, and these absolutely terrified Sydney to her core. And so Sawyer, being the good younger brother he was, put two and two together. This is how men think, by the way. Very simplified math equation. If seagulls terrify my sister and her terror brings me joy, then I should be trying to find as many seagulls as possible to terrorize her. So thus began a very long afternoon for Sydney. Sawyer's plan was to strategically place food around Sydney, wherever she was, so that seagulls would continue to show up. Didn't take long for Sydney to catch on to this, and so she started throwing anything that he left around her directly back at him. So he had to up his game. He was thinking, okay, placing food is too mobile. I have to go on the attack here. What do I do? What if I get the seagulls to come to me and I follow her around. So he started placing the food on himself, holding it out for them to come grab and getting as close to Sydney as he could. She was livid, freaking out the whole time, and she hated it. So naturally, best day of Sawyer's life. But eventually that got old, and he decided one more time, I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to teach seagulls a cool trick. He grabs a french fry and puts one end in his mouth. And tries to get a seagull to come take the other end from him while Sydney is watching, screaming. And in a beautiful moment of cosmic justice, the Lord sends a splattering of seagull excrement 
flying down on Sawyer's face, hitting him on the cheek, and forever ruining that day for him. That was a beautiful moment that I have never forgotten. I can never get that image of him out of my mind, including when I was at his wedding two weeks ago. (laughs) He was not very fond of me bringing that up on this, the joyous day, but we got to keep him humble somehow. That was a great day for me. I'm not going to lie. And it turned out a great day for Sydney too. Uh, There's something in all of us that just kind of longs for people to get what they have coming to them, to get what they deserve for a satisfying ending. Um, And today we're going to look at a story with something similar happening. So we're in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, I want us to be able to read this through the culture surrounding it, because there's this beautiful progression of what I'm calling uh uh-oh moments, where things go from bad to worse in a very short amount of time. So there was a judge, which is good. Jesus is like a judge. He's fair. He walks uprightly. He will help people get their justice. Who didn't fear God. Uh Uh-oh. And didn't care what men thought of him. Uh Uh-oh. At this point, we're thinking, judge is bad news. This guy is everything that a judge is not supposed to be, and he answers to absolutely no one. He's an inherently terrible character in this story from the very beginning. And so what happens when an author introduces a character that is inherently terrible? We are all waiting for them to get what they deserve. We're waiting for someone to take them down, a good guy to come in, take their spot, give them what they deserve. And that's probably what people were hoping for as Jesus was describing this person. And there was a widow. Uh Uh-oh. That's when the listeners' hearts would sink. That's when the iconic record scratch sound happens. Uh, Some manuscripts describe the Apostle James doing a spit take. This is all very bad news. Um, Widows were the lowest of the low on the social ladder. Not only were they women, hold your gaps, I know. Um, Not only were they women, they were women who had left their families to go be with their husbands who had then died. They had no one to advocate for them. They had no way to support themselves, no one to plead their case, no one to fight for them. So, in the confrontation between judge, who doesn't fear God or people, and widow, we're not placing too many bets on the widow. But that's where the story gets really interesting to me, uh, because she pleads with the judge over and over and over again, to the point where he finally relents for fear that she would come attack him. Can you actually imagine being that annoying? Parents, The next time your kids plead with you and bother you to get what they want, 
You have to remember that is completely biblical, and you're doing a great job raising them. That is exactly what you want to see. The really amazing thing about this to me is that this woman has absolutely zero societal leverage, nothing going for her, but she acts as if she does. And I think that sort of explains the strange wrap-up to this story. Because Luke, at the very beginning, tells us what this parable is about. He tells us why Jesus told the parable. It's so that we would pray and not give up. But Jesus says at the very end, what kind of faith will the Son of Man have? And I want to argue that the widow didn't show faith. That's, that's my objection to this story. She just kind of showed up. But I think that's Jesus' point. Why do we pray? We talk to God. We ask him to intercede. We ask for his blessings, his protection, his forgiveness. But here's what we don't want to think about. When it comes to prayer, we have absolutely no leverage whatsoever. Not only are we asking God for help with the things we can't control, we have no control over how those prayers turn out, whether it's going to be answered in a way we're hoping for or not. See, there are times when it seems like our prayers aren't being heard, aren't being listened to, are falling on deaf ears. There are times when everything has started to go wrong. Those times when we feel like complete failures and our own shame threatens to make us crumble. And it's these times when our, prayer is on, when our faith excuse me, is on trial, so to speak. See, during these times, are we the type of people to shake our fist at the sky and ask why? Or are we the type of people to relentlessly pursue God? Luke tells us at the beginning that this parable was to teach the disciples why they should always pray. And this doesn't mean pray as in every time something comes up. It's closer in meaning to Paul's instruction at the end of 1 Thessalonians to pray continually. And between you and me, this is our secret, I hate that instruction so much. It makes me deeply uncomfortable because I know that I am absolutely nowhere near following it. I am nowhere close to praying continually. That is a tough instruction. And I think most of us don't like it for one of two reasons. One, it just sounds boring. Sitting in a chair all day with our eyes closed, talking to God, not interacting with anyone else, sounds like a drag. It would get old very quickly. Number two, it sounds impossible. I have things to do. We have jobs. We have to provide for ourselves or our families. I simply cannot afford to pray continually. And at this point, you might be thinking, I'm about to tell you why neither of those are true, but I'm going to remind you, I'm just the intern. That's Colin's job for next week. Um, We really, really don't like this instruction. It, It makes us uncomfortable. I also want to argue that we don't like it because most of us are all too familiar with the frustration that comes from praying hard and not receiving the outcome that we had hoped for. We don't like it because it's uncomfortable to talk about a God who listens and loves and answers our prayers when it feels like none of those are true. We don't like it because we've had times when we've wanted to yell and scream, where are you when I need you? And fortunately, just like irritating our parents, that's biblical too. The Psalms are full of every type of emotion. 
There's plenty of God is great all the time and I will praise you. But there's also plenty of where are you? Where is my God? Why have you left me? And as N.T. Wright points out, this was common for the Jewish people. And they had a wonderful approach for these times. In his book, Surprised by Hope, he says, the psalmists often feel that God has become distant and remote, perhaps even that he has turned to fight against them. Yet they refuse to believe when they call and nothing happens that the boss has gone fishing or is away playing golf. They go on battering on his door until they can remind him of his personal promises, his great acts of old on Israel's behalf, and above all, his personal love. This is almost exactly what Jesus is getting at in this parable, I think. And not only that, but Jesus does the exact same thing. When he's dying on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, recently in Christianity, I think our focus has shifted a little bit. We've started to focus only on the joy and the grace and the freedom and renewal that comes from God. And hear me, those are wonderful things, great things about a life with God. But if these are our only focus, if that is all we are focusing on to the exclusion of all others, we are missing a crucial part of life. See, our assumption becomes if God brings joy, if God is the true source of all joy, then when I am not feeling joy, then God must not be here. But life is about so much more than that. Life has sorrow and pain and heartache, and loss, and unspeakable sadness. We have to be a people that refuses to believe that God is gone, that God is elsewhere. We have to be prepared to persist day after day after day. As Fred Craddock puts it, until you have stood for years, knocking at a locked door, your knuckles bleeding, you do not really know what prayer is. And this starts to get at what Jesus was saying in verse 8 about the kind of faith that the Son of Man will find on the earth. But faith is not fully encapsulated by praying persistently. Real faith goes beyond that. Because faith is an action. And praying constantly when you don't see anything coming of it is a great example. But it's not the only example. But we don't have very many examples of faith as an action, of faith as a verb. See, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we spend a lot of time talking about the Bible. And the irony of me saying that is not lost on me, but I don't preach every week, so I'm allowed to say it. Think about how much time goes into speaking about the Bible. We have the sermons every Sunday morning. We have Bible classes. We have Bible studies, small groups, you name it. We talk, and we talk a lot. And most of us are familiar with that verse in First Peter that says, always be prepared to give a reason, an answer when people ask the reason for the hope that you have. And if I asked you that question, you could probably give me an answer. You could tell me why you have this hope. You could tell me what you believe to be true and special about your relationship with God. You could tell me that. And the truth is, there's a lot that we say we believe that does not line up with how we act. And this isn't a sermon about how we need to talk the talk and walk the walk. This is a sermon about faith. That's what I'm talking about, what we believe. And I want to ask you, do you believe that God provides for his people? Because we spend a whole lot of time worrying about money, working longer hours, trying to get the promotion, the bigger paycheck, more security, saving, hoarding, 
so we can have more security. I don't want to live a life where my provision is dependent on my ability. Do you believe that God is in control? So we spend a whole lot of time panicking about the current state of our world or who's running our nation. Or are we raising our kids right? Are we being the right kind of friend? Are we doing everything right to invite Jesus back to our world? I don't want to live a life where my confidence is dependent on my ability. Do you believe that God has forgiven and redeemed you? Because we spend a lot of our life walking in shame and darkness, unsure if God's love is really for us. I don't want to live a life where salvation is dependent on my ability. Something just doesn't match up here. What we say and how we act just do not align. I think it's time that we started acting like what we believe about God is actually true. What we say we believe is actually true. Jesus makes it clear that this is completely expected. This is what the Son of Man wants to find when he returns to this world. He even gives us plenty of incentive. In verse 8, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes back, not if. We don't have to be a people who wonder what their Savior's up to. We can live like people who know that their Savior is coming back. And when the Son of Man comes, is he going to find a people who were waiting for him? And it's usually at this point in the sermon that I start thinking, okay, great. What am I supposed to do with that? I really don't know. I don't know what it would look like if we started living fully as if what we believed about God were true. I do know, though, that it would look completely different and unique and separate from the rest of the world. I know that to everyone else, we would look completely different, completely alien. And isn't that the point? Even our fellow Christians, our closest brothers and sisters, would be wondering what was going on. In 1960, in a small village in eastern India, a man named Dashrath Manji began a construction project. Earlier that year, his wife had been injured while climbing a mountain. And because of the mountains surrounding their village, the closest hospital was a 40-plus mile journey, and his wife died on the way. So instead of accepting that this was an outcome of the way things had, already been, had always been, he got to work. He started to fix it. One day at a time, armed with nothing but a sledgehammer, a chisel, and a crowbar, Manji began carving his way through a 300-foot-wide mountain. To support himself, Manji plowed fields from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Not content with only a half day with the mountain, he carved out that rock from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. and then from 1 p.m. to the late evening. The road that he carved is 30 feet wide, 360 feet long, and has walls of rock 25 feet high on either side. The distance to public services, such as hospitals and schools, was reduced from over 43 miles to just one half mile. In total, Manji spent 22 years of his life carving through this road. This is putting faith into action. This is a man believing that each 
resident in his village deserves opportunity. He didn't just say it. He didn't just own that he believed it, that everyone deserves better than this. He did something about it. He put that into action. If we were to truly live as people of faith, there's not a chance that people wouldn't notice. We would look almost as strange as a lowly widow badgering a judge until we got our way. Earlier I mentioned that we need to be ready when people ask about the reason for the hope that we have. But that was written with the assumption that people are asking. That was written with the assumption that the people have been so transformed by the power of God that they are almost unrecognizable to those around you. So I have to ask, how many people are asking you why you're so confident or why you're so loving or why you're so at peace? How many people are asking you why you're so different? Imagine if instead of fighting for money, for nicer things, we started giving more than we kept. We started living on less. We started worrying less. We started humbling ourselves in the eyes of other people. Imagine if we stayed out of arguments regarding the current state of our world, regarding our leadership, because we trust in the God who provides. Imagine if we walked as people who were truly redeemed, forgiven, and loved, eager to tell the world about how our God redeemed us. People would be dying to know why. Why? What makes you like this? I want this. This is the power of Jesus. This is how he shines in our world. This is how we become light in the world. It's not in the words that we say. It's in how those words shape our actions. It's time to talk less and live more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your parables as a reminder of your truth. We thank you for your son. And we ask that we can live lives of faith to honor him and to honor you. God, give us courage. Help us to go forth and be bold in our actions. Help us to live exactly as we talk. And in all things, God, help us glorify you. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.